Hi, welcome to this talk. My name is Lisa Palmer. I currently work as the Deputy Director of the Stephen Norwich Research Centre at De Montfort University in Leicester. Today, I'm going to share with you some black feminist ideas and perspectives about the gendering of modernity. In doing so, I will, argue, I will be arguing that in the making of, of modernity, questions of gender and sexuality constitute the very structures of power by which modernity is organised and understood. Equally, it is not possible to talk about the gendering of modernity without also showing how these power structures and processes are also racialized. In this sense, we must consider what Denise Noble has called the, the entanglements of modernity's racial and gendered formation. To illustrate some of these entanglements, I'm going to, to start with an examination of the social category of the woman through Sojourner Truth's speech, Ain't I a Woman? I will discuss this speech to trace the figure of the enslaved African woman and her labour within the making of the modern world. I will move into a discussion about what Hortense Spillers has called the ungendering of African women under slavery, which will be followed by a consideration of Arianke Ayewumi's ideas on the imposition of colonial Western gender categories in Yoruba land. My aim here is to provide an illustration of the ways gender and racialization are explicitly, explicitly bound to colonial world making that continue to have an imprint into the contemporary lives of black women. So why do we need to understand and state explicitly how modernity is both gendered and racialized? Well, in 1851, at the Women's Rights Convention held in Akron, Ohio, Isabella Brownfree, more widely known as Sojourner Truth, delivered what is now recognized as one of the most famous abolitionist and women's rights speeches in American history, Ain't I a Woman? In her speech, Truth questions and problematizes the gendered category of womanhood. She stated, that man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches and to have the best place everywhere. Nobody helps me into carriages or over mud muddy puddles or gives me the best place. Ain't I a woman? Look at me, look at my arm. I have ploughed and planted and gathered into barns and no man could heed me. Ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as a man when I could get it and bear the lash as well. Ain't I a woman? I've, I've borne 13 children and I've seen most of them sold off into slavery. And when I cried out with my mother's grief. None but Jesus heard me. Ain't I a woman? In plantation economies, enslaved African women were put to work to plant, plough and harvest crops, to nurse, cook and to clean. Their wombs with their capacity to give birth to human life were also put to work as the site of fecundity to reproduce more labour to sustain the systematic economic productivity of the plantation economy. They had no right to keep their children 
who were born into a system that routinely separated them from their mothers and assigned their life's purpose to a continuous supply of labour as an asset resource akin to chattel. It was inconsequential that they grieved as it was also judged that they were incapable of experiencing the full gamut of human feelings. The sexuality of, of enslaved African women was also put to work as a surplus supply of seemingly endless access to sexual conquest in the form of rape and other forms of sexual violence and domination. Enslaved African women were owned as property and as such, they had no legally recognized recourse to marriage nor to any legal protections from sexual violence. In true speech, we can see how enslaved African women were not exempt from the exceptional and barbaric forms of violence that enslaved African men were routinely subjected to as a function of the plantation economy. In other words, being a, a woman racialized as black under plantation slavery offered no protection, nor exemptions from the routine forms of grotesque, grotesque violence. On the contrary, as Bell Hooks has argued, True speech illustrated that enslaved black women were the living embodiment of the truth that women could be the work equals of men. All of these acts of extracted labor from black women were assigned to their racialized bodies and were not the province of those whose womanhood was racialized as white. As Sojourner Truth clearly understood, the figure of the black woman was, has a complicated historical relationship to the category of womanhood. Indeed, black feminist writers have also grappled with this conundrum. Horton Spillers in her essay, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, an American grammar book, explains that African men and women as enslaved captives on slave vessels traveling to the new world had undergone a dehumanizing ungendering and defacing project. She argues that as human cargo packed into the slave ship, a fundamental effacement and remission of their personhood, including the loss of their family name, was part of the ungendering process. Spillers argues that the process of ungendering happened through a schema of destructive sensuality where the captive body was reduced to a thing, a physical and biological expression of otherness. Gendering, on the other hand, the process of producing fundamental ideas about masculinity and femininity had taken place within the confines of the domestic space and became an essential metaphor that had spread across a wider ground of human and social purposes. Crucially, Spillers invites us to juxtapose these two spaces, the location of the domestic and the location of the slave ship, in order to think about how domesticity is the site where gender is made against the slave ship as a counter narrative of the domestic space where gendering is undone. While Spillers wants us to see the ways in which the figure of the black woman is violently evicted and precluded from the social category of the woman, 
there are other ways to think about how gender categories have been violently imposed through colonialism. The Nigerian sociologist Arianke Ayewumi's book, The Invention of Women Making Sense of Gender Discourses, makes a decolonial claim against the imposition of Western gender categories on Yoruba discourse. Ayewumi's discussion of colonialism does not begin with the formal colonization of Yoruba land. It assumes a periodization that includes the transatlantic slave trade in Africans because, she argues, it is impossible to separate these two processes in Yoruba history. She argues that the fun fundamental category of woman simply did not exist in Yoruba land prior to the sustained contact with the West. Gender was never socially constructed in Yoruba society and that it was a person's relative age that was instead the main organising principle. The misapplication of Western gender categories in colonial Yoruba land assumed that Western constructions were universal. Ayayume further argues that as the history of both the colonizer and the colonized have been written from a male point of view, women are peripheral if they appear at all in both of these historical narratives. Who could be thought of as a human under the colonial gaze was organized into four categories, she argues. At the top were Yoruba men, followed by European, sorry, at the top were European men, followed by European women, followed by the native, the African man, and the African woman, the other. Ayewumi's rec recognized that colonization involved two intersect intersected or interconnected processes, including the inferiorization of African people uh, more generally along the lines of being de dehumanized and the inferiorization of African women, who she refers to as Anna females. Ayurumi's arguments are cited by the decolonial feminist Maria Lagones in her essay, The Coloniality of Gender. Lagones makes, takes issue with, the decolon with decolonial thinkers who reject colonial categories of race, but at the same time do not go far enough to reject the Eurocentered colonial categories of gender and sexuality that are rigidly defined through binary constructs of male superiority over women. So how can we make sense of these arguments of engendering under slavery in North America and the imposition of colonial categories of the woman in Yoruba land within our contemporary times? Well, firstly, in both Spillers and Ayurumi's writing, we are being encouraged to think about the discursive epistemology of womanhood. In other words, what are the dominant knowledge claims that are being made when we talk about concepts of gender? One answer to this question is to acknowledge that constructions of gender continue to reproduce exclusionary categories of womanhood attached to Western constructs of whiteness, heteronormativity and patriarchy that regulate and police the boundaries to gendered identities. To be thought of as a true woman is to be made in the image of whiteness more generally and more specifically a domestically located 
middle-class notion of whiteness with rigid social boundaries that privilege heteronormative and patriarchal family structures. Such a suffocating position does not hold out much hope for a liberated category of the human nor of the woman. In this sense, the category of womanhood is important to understanding modernity and colonial world-making because common sense understandings of the woman continue to re-emerge in the afterlife of slavery and colonialism. Secondly, both Spillers and Ayurumi show how insidious it is to be indifferent to the racialized, gendered sexual violence and oppression that black women have faced under systems of white supremacy. This continues to remain relevant today in the context of campaigns such as Say Her Name, which launched in 2014 to advance a gender inclusive narrative in the movement for black lives. The Say Her Name campaign was created to raise awareness about the number of black women and girls, included Miriam Carey, Gabrielle Devares, Chantal Davis, Melissa Williams, Maya Hall and Sandra Bland, that have been killed by law enforcement officers in the US, but whose names remain vastly, vastly absented from the news stories and public discourses in ways that the deaths of black men at the hands of, this, of, state, at the hands of state violence are not. As Kimberly Crenshaw, one of the founders of the African American Policy Forum and the Say Her Name movement has argued, the struggle against racism seemed to compel the subordination of certain aspects of the black female experience in order to ensure the security of the larger black community. In the United Kingdom, the Say Her Name hashtag has been used to highlight the cases of black women who have died at the hands of, of police and state violence, including Joy Gardner, Cynthia Jarrett and Sarah Reid. This insidious indifference presents, as, Gail, as Gail Lewis has argued, a context that has a history of structurally and ideologically legitimating violence so central to the making and sustain, sustaining of racial formations that after, trans, that after transatlantic enslavement, it would render the figure of the black woman an oxymoron, if not an impossibility. Finally, I want to end by returning to Sojourner Truth and her decision to bare her breasts during her Ain't I a Woman speech to prove that she was indeed a woman, not to the white men who denied who she was, nor to the white men, women who did not want her to speak. I think about this moment as both a tacit acknowledgement of the colonizing gendered norms of the day and as Truth's bold rejection of those same values. Truth's bearing of her breast is a refusal of these conventions, and as, a such, and as such, she's making a claim for her own space, for her own self, in the making of the modern world.